welcome to the fourth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. My guest today is Deborah Blumenthal. Deborah is a Chicago-based freelance dramaturg and works at the University of Chicago in graduate student career development and experiential education. She is the former director of new play development for Route 66 Theatre Company and holds a BA in American Studies with a focus on the American Musical from Barnard College and an MA in Humanities and 20th Century American Drama from the University of Chicago. We're going to talk today about Stephen Sondheim and George Firth's musical, Company. Hey, Deborah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be doing this. Um, something I've like, wanted to talk about in public for a long time, so super excited. Great. Well, before we get to talking about Company, we will first start with our get to know our guest questions. Uh, what was your first experience with a musical? So my first experience with a live musical that I remember was seeing Cats on Broadway. I was six. Um, I'm sure there must have been earlier experiences with musicals of some kind, particularly movie musicals. Um, we had a lot of those on VHS around the house when I was a kid. Um, one of my mom's favorite movies is The Sound of Music. And I'm sure I saw like The Wizard of Oz or something before my parents took me to see Cats. Um, but I don't have any specific memories of other musical theater firsts like I do. So I'm going to go with that. Um, and it was definitely my first ever Broadway experience. My main memory from that experience is that we were sitting toward the front of the mezzanine and when the lights went down and the actors were like crawling around with their eyes glowing in the dark, or at least that's how it looked and continues to look in my mind. My brother, who was three at the time and I think was so young that he would not be allowed in a Broadway theater today, um, was terrified and just screamed bloody murder, which is fair because Cats is creepy. Um, and as an adult, I have to say I'm fascinated by that choice by my parents. But it was 1992, so Disney on Broadway wasn't even a thing, and the family-friendly game was totally different. So that was my first experience as a child. Nice. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame your brother there. It's a, it's a natural reaction. <laughs> yeah. Cool. What's a musical people may be surprised to find out you love, and why would they be surprised? Yeah, um, I absolutely love Aida. It has a steadfast place in my top five, and it has for a really long time. Um, there are other things I like that would probably surprise people. For example, I love Oklahoma, and I know that's a very unpopular opinion. Um, but I picked Aida because that production was what really bit me with the theater bug when I was a teenager. That experience was just really electrifying for me. I remember walking out and turning to my mom and saying, I want to turn around and go back and do it again. I bought the album the next day. Uh, my mom loves musicals, and my dad worked in the city. So my brother and I saw a lot when we were um, kids, and we were really lucky. But that was the first show that I remember really loving and that's how I continue to describe it. It's the first show that I chose to go see more than once. It's the first show about which I had that compulsive pull to be at the closing performance. Um, and I think people might be surprised because it's kind of an outlier on the list of other things that I really love. Love Sondheim, I love Cantor and Ebb, I love things like Fun Home, small intimate chamber musicals, things that people would consider kind of niche, shows that are dark and unusual, and Aida was big and flashy and commercial in every single way. It was a little campy. I mean, some of it was written by Elton John, so of course it was. Um, and now that I'm older, I recognize that it had flaws, although I don't think that's the reason people would be surprised that I like it. Um, I just think that stylistically, it stands on its own from so many of the other things I feel is kind of long-term love for. 
other than say like rent, which absolutely no one is ever surprised to hear that someone loves. Right. Who is your favorite hero character or protagonist in a musical? And who is your favorite villain or antagonist? In a musical? Um, if I can take the liberty of considering them as one character, which I know is kind of a stretch, it's the Georges and Sunday in the Park with George. Mm. Um, I relate to them in some ways to the anxieties of being a creative person who struggles to connect with other people. The difficulty of having confidence in yourself and confidence that something um, that you have something to contribute that's new and interesting and worthwhile and then as a person for whom one of the best things in the world is to be emotionally impacted by a piece of art, I just, as an audience member, relate with what the show is using them to tell us about the power and longevity and importance of art, even art that people initially think is kind of weird. Um, antagonist is a lot harder for me because so many great musical theater characters are so complex that the lines get kind of blurry between villain and anti-hero for me. And so then like something like Sweeney Todd comes to mind as a person who you know, does terrible things to enact revenge. Um, and is one of the most fascinating characters in one of the most perfect musicals that exists. But I, I feel that he's more of an anti-hero. But thinking about Sweeney Todd, I think we can look at Mrs. Lovett as a villain, um, even if she's a character who, of course, because she's a Stephen Sondheim creation, doesn't fit that traditional idea of a hostile person or an adversary. Um, but she's selfish and she's deceitful. And I think, you know, like the show she's a part of, she's just the best of the best. She's dimensional and quirky and charming and creepy. Um, and those songs she gets to sing. So yeah, I'm going to go with Mrs. Lovett. Nice. Yeah. And it's, I feel like we sometimes forget that it, it was all, it's all her idea to do the pie thing. <laughs> yeah. And she knows what's up and she lets him do it anyway. And yeah. that's just, you know, I, I love her and I think she's so fun, but, but it's awful. Yeah. What older or classic show did you recently see for the first time? And what was your experience with it? Um, I'm going to take a pretty broad definition of classical here because I know that there are people who will disagree with my assessment. Um, but after many years of waiting, I finally got to see chess in 2018. Um, and even for people who love chess, chess doesn't necessarily work as well as it could sort of notoriously. That's a show of which there are many versions and its lifetime has just been this series of trial and error. Um, the staging that I saw was at the Kennedy Center oh, yeah. and it had yet another new version of the book. Um, and that experience was really pretty awesome because I had flown to DC specifically to see it and traveling to see theater is something that I do pretty frequently. Um, but it's still something that always feels really special. And what was so unique about going to see chess was that this was an event where it was really clear that so many other people had done the exact same thing. And the members of the audience were from all over the country, including the friends who had joined me there, um, and even people all over the world. And this was really different from being in an audience in New York surrounded by tourists. These were people who had gone somewhere other than New York for the love of a musical that's, I would say, niche at best, right? Um, and that gave the experience just this really exciting communal feeling. Um, it adds something when you're surrounded by people who are just as thrilled as you are and who've been waiting just as long for this as you have. Um, and so the applause just had this like roar to it throughout the entire show. And the star of chess is far and away its score and getting to hear that live for the first time was just everything I had gone for and more. It was everything that I had flown through a snowstorm for and more. Yeah. Um, and the cast was really magnificent and, and hearing those songs performed by some of those voices just gave me some of the highlights of my theater going career. So chess is, is an extremely imperfect piece, but the waiting and the payoff of that waiting, I think was just really great. And what is a moment in a musical that you think gets to a complex emotional state you didn't think was possible to get to? Um, my instinct here is to talk about being alive because what I felt in that moment early on is still 
truly the biggest surprise of my theater going life. Um, but since we are going to have a longer discussion about company and I don't want to give that away, um, instead, I'm going to go back to my 2003 self and talk about the ending of the Sam Mendes production of Cabaret, which is my all-time favorite production of any show anywhere ever. Um, I think that now as an adult, it's hard for me to think of emotional states that I don't think it's possible for a musical to get me to. But at that time, I was still in high school and I was mostly seeing shows with my parents. And most of the musicals I had seen had been ultimately like pretty cheery and uplifting. Um, I knew nothing about cabaret other than what I had seen on the TV spot. And I begged my mom for years to take me to see it. And for years, based on that very same TV spot, she thought it was too edgy or something. Um, and when the closing announcement came, she finally gave in and we went. And I will never forget that finale and the silence in the audience when the lights came up. Like everyone was just in this like stupor that delayed their ability to start applauding. Um, and it was just like I had had the wind knocked out of me by, by that sort of final sequence. Um, and it sounds kind of silly now, but this was a time when I didn't realize that musicals could be like this, that they could be dark and devastating and shocking. Um, I don't think I had even seen Rent yet at that point. Like I was really living in this space of like musicals are happy. Mm -hmm. um, so this opened up kind of a brand new world to me in which I realized that the emotional capability of a musical is much deeper than to just give you a good time. We'll get to, you know, talking about being alive because we're going to move into talking about company for our topic. So um, I guess, uh, you know, I, I think part of the part of our discussion or maybe the entire discussion is kind of going to be, I think, about this show in relation to time, which I think is 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 very cool. So I guess let's let's start with your your um timeline with with company and and when you first saw it and and the time the other times that you've seen it yeah i think that's such a good way to think about it because one of the things that i describe as a as something that interests me is like the aging process of sort of new classic musicals which is where i think this discussion kind of lives um so yeah i can offer some context and say that i know you know later we'll talk about kind of the journey and the experiences um, but it might, might be useful to set up or to set this up by saying that um, my first experience was my first experience was the 2006 2007 production, so the John Doyle one with the actor musicians um, that was filmed and you can now see it, um, on a variety of streaming platforms. Um, I was affected by that in ways that I didn't expect to be, and I watched the same thing happen with a lot of my friends and other people that I met during that time. Young people, people in their late teens and early twenties, were being profoundly impacted by a show that's technically about middle age and marriage, and I really wanted to understand why this was happening. Um, I'm someone who likes to be able to understand and clearly explain what I'm feeling. And so when I think about this in relation to theater, it extends really beyond the personal aspects. And so as a then student and now professional, I have a really broad interest in how audiences relate to musicals and what role historical and cultural contexts play in their experiences. So with company, it wasn't good enough for me to say, well, this is just impactful because people have feelings and it's well-made theater. Um, so in 2007 and 2008, I wrote a 100-page American Studies thesis on the Doyle production, which, even though it's quite old now, sort of upsettingly old, um, is something that I'm still really proud of. And all of the research that I did at that time began as an investigation of my own experience um, and the experiences of my, my friends and peers, because on the surface, again, it didn't initially make all that much sense. So what that paper does, and then we can sort of back up and talk through um, that kind of contextual argument and then my sort of personal journey. Um, what that paper does is it considers company both in 1970 and in 2007 
in two contextual ways. It looks at the American cultural context about marriage and relationships and cohabitation and urban life. And then within the context of the American musical, because of course company in 1970 was a revolution in every way. Um, so it considers the ways in which a director in the early 2000s should interpret company in order for it to make a meaningful connection with a modern audience. Um, and then breaks down the Doyle production to argue that it did exactly that. So when, especially when they announced that this new production that is kind of on hold now because of the pandemic um, with a woman in the the main role of Bobby, um, the gender flip version, I guess. Um, it got me thinking a lot about company as it was originally written, you know, with a with a thirty five year old man, and um, yeah, thinking about how that was viewed at that time and, you know, kind of starting there before even thinking about like how it's changed today. So yeah. Yeah, that production I feel like has put a really beautiful set of ellipses on kind of all of the things that I've ever thought about company. Um, but yeah, so in my research, I looked at things like opinions on marriage versus unmarried cohabitation arrangements in 1970. Um, this was a time when people were challenging long held cultural beliefs about marriage and relationships. And in the show, we see this most clearly in that scene where Peter and Susan tell Bobby that they got a divorce, but they're gonna continue living together. Um, I think we see it in Joanne, somebody who's been married three times and is sort of like, well, whatever, I've been married three times. Um, TikTok was about the sexual revolution. So in that way, the original company in terms of its subject was very much about, of its time. Um, this was a world where if a man was single at 35, there was some kind of problem, that sort of loose connection as the lyric says. Um, you know, maybe he just like can't commit or maybe, maybe he's gay. And I don't think that Bobby is gay, um, but there is, you know, a scene that raises that question. And so the keys to this research for me were texts actually not about theater at all, but on bachelorhood in America. Um, so as you move into the 80s, there's literature on the changing landscape of single people in the United States and single life at an older age becoming more common or the idea that being single was no longer um, like an in-between state or a holding pattern people were in until they were able to like complete themselves by settling down. Um, rather trends were showing that for some people it was a state that they chose or, or at least accepted being in. Um, more and more people were following kind of less traditional paths when it came to relationships. More and more men were staying single for longer and older bachelorhood was something that was becoming kind of normalized. Um, and so what that unlocked for me is the idea that for our generation, an unmarried man at 35 is not the kind of problem that it was in 1970. And if that's the case, then company for us, or, or maybe a better way to say this is um, that company, a, co a company that works for us doesn't concentrate on that theme. So in the early 2000s, when company was almost 40 years old, I think the focus moved away from looking at it as a show about a man figuring out whether or not to get married because his friends were pestering him to catch up and, and settle down. Um, and I looked at the early 2000s in a couple of ways, such as the growing ubiquity of technology in our lives, the sense of isolation that comes along with that. Um, and I think a modern company is really truly at its core about the alone together feeling of living in a big city, especially in New York City. And I think that the revival the 2006-7 revival centered New York City as a major character in the show. And New York City has always been a presence, but it really felt like it was kind of 
that 15th character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that's been the feel of life in New York City for a long time, but I think that technology has exacerbated that in so many ways. Um, and when that revival was running, I was living in Manhattan, I was in college, and this was still before everybody had smartphones even. Like, I still had a flip phone, most of my friends had flip phones, but I remember nobody went anywhere without, without headphones. It was like this way for you to just kind of disappear in public. Um, you go to the grocery store and have your headphones in and not even interact with the checkout person because you had your headphones in and people are walking around staring at their phones and we text instead of calling and all of these things were really becoming kind of major waves of change in the way that we we interact with other people. Um, There was this kind of depersonalization happening all around us. I also looked at some literature about post 9-11 New York City and how people felt their lives and outlooks had changed um, because this was still, you know, five years yeah, five years after, I guess. Um, and there was a lot about interpersonal interactions and longing for meaningful connections. So on one hand, we're lessening connection with others in our daily lives, but we're also still filled with this human longing for it. So I think that everything about the Doyle production was about connection and disconnection. That was, for me, not a show about marriage. It was not a show about someone deciding whether he should get married or or like examining marriage. It was, it was about someone who can't connect to other people. Um, and every choice in every part of how it looked, the costumes, the set, the staging, were in service of that. So for example, how infrequently the characters touched um, that karate scene where Harry and Sarah are on opposite sides of the stage, the Bobby and April scene where she goes back to his house and they are fully dressed. Um, that kind of iciness of the way the set looked. And I guess most, most prominently, the way that Doyle used musical instruments in the staging. Um, and so I think that what John did that was so smart is that he shifted the focus onto how difficult it can be to connect with others and the loneliness that you feel even when you're surrounded by other people. Um, and I think those are definitely not age-limited feelings, but what's more adolescent or young adult than feeling, at least at times, very alone? Um, and what's more early 20s than figuring out what it means to grow up and define who you are in terms of how you relate to other people. So looking at it from those perspectives and looking sort of beyond like, well, I really love this thing and it makes me cry a lot. Um, I felt and I still feel that John created a truly modern company without changing a word. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting that shift because I know from reading, you know, about what Sondheim has said about the show that they they always had the New York metaphor. Sondheim even said like the theme of the show is is the challenge of maintaining relationships yeah. in a society being becoming increasingly depersonalized. So like I I feel like that you know they they knew they were writing that stuff the, those things into the show, but it seems like the focus from the original 1970 was on this marriage, marriage thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think, it, you know, some, it, that's always been to me kind of like the, the B theme of it. And, you know, there were people who would sort of say he re John Doyle reinterpreted company and, you know, people would joke that he, he fixed company. And I, I think he just, he just put his focus somewhere else in a way that I think was a revelation and, and made the show reach young audiences in a way that like a traditional company, I just think can't to look at the present and the future of the show, I think changing the lead to a woman kind of dismantles that argument that companies shouldn't focus on marriage anymore. Um, And I don't think the argument that focusing on connection and disconnection is a good thing for the show goes away. But now I think it's a place where it does and should do both. 
So I'm thinking that while confirmed bachelorhood is sort of okay now, and yes, being single for people in general is seen as less of a, a problem women specifically are still experiencing kind of this endless feed of can we have it all think pieces and conversations about biological clocks and so in the the new revival tiktok is included and it's literally about a ticking biological clock it's not um choreography is not conceptual it's multiple versions of bobby living out different versions of her life you know with a husband with a baby and sort of just these loops that are going on i think it, it feels more like a dream ballet to me than than tiktok used to um, what TikTok is, I think, because sure. So yeah, TikTok is uh, included. Yeah, TikTok is is um, the dance numbering company that kind of comes and goes. Um, I've seen a very small handful of productions that include it, and most don't anymore because it doesn't really feel like it fits. I think in a lot of ways. Um, and Donna McCackney's book talks about how TikTok really represented the sexual revolution, and so I think that's why a lot of modern directors don't include it. Um, I think it's great. I think it's really interesting. But yeah, the new production includes it and makes it very clear that that is a, a ticking biological clock for a woman. But I also think the thing that's most exciting about this production is that changing Bobby into a woman actually brings the show back to, in a way, what it was originally meant to be. Like, it can centralize these questions of romantic partnership again and do so in a way that ignites, hopefully, fewer arguments about how it's dated. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something I never imagined I'd get to experience, but as someone who loves the show and, and is still reverent to its history and how much of a game changer it was, I feel really lucky to get to experience that. Like, I want to imagine that now when I see it or when I saw it in London, mm -hmm. I'm seeing a company that feels as close as I have the ability to get to feel what it was like to see the original in that moment in history. Yeah, I will admit that the first, uh, when I first heard that they were doing this, I was not on board because i thought of it as like company was written by men to be about a man um you know in in the 1970 and of course it's been the production the the show has been done since then and revivals you know as we've talked about but that it's that it's still inherently a man's story but the more i've talked to people about it and the more i've well i haven't seen it but i'm more open now. I mean, that makes me think of your question about is company a show about a man or a woman or does it matter? Right. Yeah. Cause as I've been thinking through it, I've been thinking like, does it matter the gender and, or was it, or do we have to take into account that these, these male writers were writing for at the time for a, a man? Yeah. That's such an interesting question. And it's something that kind of ping pongs in my head because I remember at the time it was announced, there were people who were like, well, why don't we just write a new show with a female protagonist that addresses these questions? Like, why do we have right. to do the old one written by men up until now in major productions directed by men? Um, I will say that I don't think we would get the version we're getting now without a female director um, and without a female director who has kind of such a powerful vision and you know there are interviews about kind of the process of her pitching this to Sondheim and getting him on board and I think it, it felt to me sort of like convincing him um but I think that voice of uh Marion Elliott who I believe is just a total visionary had to be instrumental in thinking through what this could be in a way that feels true um and in making the case that it works in the first place at least that's kind of the story that that's told um 
Because I think, yes, you can ask, well, you know, why make this change? The show works just fine the way it was written. Um, and I absolutely think that it does. Like, I wouldn't be having this conversation if I didn't think that. But the changes that Marion Elliott made, I think, not only changed the conversation on the show forever, um, like, namely, can we please stop talking about how company is dated now? Mm-hmm. Um, but in doing so, I think that this production ensures the show's future in a way that I'm really, really grateful for. Um, and so it's hard for me to say, I think that one version is better than the other, or even that I like one better than the other. Um, but that being said, I do think it matters which way it's done in that what the show is doing for audiences and how it's doing it is somewhat tied to which version of the lead you have, because everything we were saying before about kind of expectations in our culture, um, I would never have argued that a male Bobby wasn't relatable because he was a man. But I did argue that he was relatable because the Doyle staging was not primarily about marriage. Mm. So like, I don't believe that a successful production with a male Bobby in 2021 is a production that concerns itself too much with, you know, hurry up and get married. Time is ticking. Uh, I think it, again, kind of refocuses the show on the different themes the way that John Doyle did. Um, And so while it's impossible for me to believe that that production was staged 15 years ago, I really believe in my heart of hearts that it would still be effective today. Yeah. And it is, it is different. Like, you know, women in 1970, 35, I think was probably very old for, would have been very old. for Right. Like you need to be married by 23 or whatever. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah. Like I, like my parents got married when they were 30 and I grew up thinking that was old to get married. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's just changed so much. And I, you know, I think about my friends who, you know, most of my close friends are recently married or still not married. And I, yeah, well, I also think it's interesting, like just how, how we've been talking about, like how we as, as people experience company through at different points throughout our lifetime and, you know, how we experience it as a young person is how is different from how we experience it. Uh, you know, in our thirties and when we approach 35, you know, and, um, but it is interesting, you know, to, to think about, um, you know, why we, I I mean, as you did in your, your thesis, like why we experience it, how, why, or how we experience it at different ages. And I was thinking about, you know, is this, at least the 1970s version, if it's about marriage, if it is focusing on the marriage part, but is it about marriage or is it about looking at marriage? And if it's about really looking at and examining marriage, then it is something that a young person can relate to because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're all like marriage is so like in our culture, like, (laughs) like you can't escape. Like even as like a three-year-old, I was like in my preschool class, I'm going to marry you, you know, do the little like fake weddings. Yeah. They're always thinking like even children are always thinking about marriage. It's just so, it's just something that's so prevalent. And so yeah, and you're taught to treat that as a goal for your, you know, entire childhood. And right. And it's and especially just, growing up Jewish. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just something that's inevitably gonna happen at some point. So it's uh, you know, growing up thinking that. So it's so if it's a show that's more about, I mean, because he's not, you know, the main character is not married. Sondheim wasn't married. I mean, he talks about 
when he was writing the show, having to call up Mary Rogers, <laughs> be like, tell me everything you know. What's it like? Yeah. Yeah. It becomes to me more a show about that's not about marriage per se, but is about the examination of marriage. So it's um, so yeah, so when I see it at any age, I'm like, Oh, this is interesting, because I I always at any age, I'm at a point where I'm examining marriage. In a yeah, I think that's such an important distinction, because it's not about I think on its surface, it's about deciding whether you want to get married, which, you know, maybe you're not doing as a college student who like, doesn't date. But examining the idea of marriage is something that we do throughout our entire lives. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that it's both. And I think it's one of those things that it's kind of what you bring to it. It's where you are in your life. Um, but the ways that I've experienced it in relation to marriage and otherwise have changed um, so much over the years. And this is one of my favorite topics and something that's just been on my mind a lot um, as I approach my own 35th birthday. But one of my most treasured memories is of the way that I felt after the first time I saw company. So I was 19. Um, it was a month shy of my 20th birthday. And heading into that birthday, I thought 20 was just like so intimidating. I felt like my youth was over. I felt like I was going to encounter all of this change and all of this pressure to like be something. And looking back, I'm not sure why, because my life was not changing drastically. Like I was just going to keep doing school. I was right in the middle of college. Um, but it felt big in a way that made me nervous. Um, and the absolute truth of my first experience with company is that I was pretty new to Sondheim. Like I was totally unfamiliar with company other than its basic biographical details and a couple of quick listens to the big songs. I knew that it was about a 35 year old man who's being pressured by his friends to get married. That is truly it. Um, and so nowhere in my mind was there even the tiniest expectation that I'd relate to the show. I figured I would enjoy it because of course you don't have to see yourself in a piece in order to enjoy it on an aesthetic or intellectual level. But my thinking was I'm 19. I don't really date. What am I going to connect with about a show that's around middle age and marriage? Um, so this specific memory that I referred to is of the few minutes after the show, I had seen it with a friend and as we filed out of the theater, we didn't say anything to each other. And then we just, kind of simultaneously sat down on a bench in the lobby of the theater and just descended into this fit of ecstatic teenage girl giggles. And we were so overcome with emotion that we didn't have any plans to experience. Um, and that was how we were processing it together. And that emotion on the surface, I think, was the euphoria of witnessing something really, really beautiful, um, and particularly the intensity of that production's interpretation of being alive. But when I had the chance to unpack what was going on, I realized that we had seen ourselves in that mirror we just didn't expect to. And the show had gotten itself just firmly and forever under our skin. And so in the year that followed, I pursued this question of why in all of the ways that we already talked about. Um, I saw the Broadway transfer. I can't believe I'm going to admit this on record, but 18 times. And then Company at 30 was just a whole other thing. Um, that was the summer of 2016. And there was another production in the Chicago area. And the same friend that I was with that night in Cincinnati came out so that we could see it together. And I went into that feeling like I knew everything there was to know about how I react to company. And it just hit me in this brand new way. I mean, by 30, I had spent a decade relating to Bobby. And this time, 10 years later, I had mostly terrible dating experience. And so at 30, you know, I had my heart broken by men who were incapable of introspection and unequipped for adult conversation 
and whose turmoil about committing to like dinner <laughs> made them impossible to have in my life. And that year in particular had been just this roller coaster of like cheating and ghosting and like so much nonsense. And so I watched Marry Me a little and I was really startled to realize that my reaction was, I know that guy, I have dated that guy and I don't like this. Um, and that was really distressing to be so much older and be unsure of whether I felt myself identifying more with Bobby or realizing that the men I dated were more and more like him. Right. And so like in previous productions, I saw Bobby as someone who needed to grow up and who struggled with making meaningful connections. But this time I saw someone who was just kind of ricocheting around doing damage to people who happened to be in his path. Um, and it was really sad for me because I have such a fondness for this character. And I had moments of wondering if maybe my real life experiences had kind of tainted this thing that I love so much, which spoiler alert did not turn out to be true. Um, but my friend and I walked outside during intermission of that production and we sat down on the curb and we just sobbed together in, in a way that we hadn't before. Like we had, there's a point in company, like I can tell you if I haven't cried by this point, this production has, has failed, but, um, it just felt really different. And there was nothing in that production that made Bobby a bad person or made Bobby's actions toward his girlfriends any less nice than before. The show was just giving me back what I was bringing to it. And, you know, and 10 years after the first time I saw it, five years after the last, it meant something entirely different to me. And I think it was that night that I fully grasped that Sondheim's work changes us mm -hmm. and it changes with us. Right. And that I was unsure whether his work grows with us or that we grow into it. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a distinction that I will always be really happy to be unable to make. Right, right. Yeah. So then in the fall of 2018, that same friend um, and I flew to London to see the Marion Elliott production together. Um, and at the time, you know, it wasn't clear that it would transfer to Broadway. I didn't want to take the chance that it wouldn't. Um, and it was something that I I'd, I'd had to experience for myself. I, I believe I was 32 at the time. Um, and that production, again, gave me things that I never knew I needed. And it changed things I thought I knew about a show that I could do for you right now, half asleep. Um, and it explores the overwhelming claustrophobia of expectation. Um, and by flipping some of the characters, raises new questions about dynamics and marriages. And so like one line that stuck out to me in a whole kind of new way was, you've got to give up to get, which Bobby says, um, or somebody says to Bobby at the end in this kind of last pitch during being live, right. my marriage is good. Um, but then, it, you know, suddenly it was, it was, they were saying it. And I thought, and a woman was saying it this time because so much is made of women having to make sacrifices. Right. And so in that production for me, marry me a little was really the revelation. Like that's when I got on that train and in this production, it's not this gentle offer to meet halfway from somebody who like doesn't understand relationships. It, at least as it was performed in London, I didn't get a chance to see it in New York, but I will be there when it comes back. Um, it is full of frustration and exhaustion. It's a woman kind of resigning to taking what she can get since she feels like she can't find what she wants. And so it's not this negotiation of what Bobby is willing to give, but of what she's willing to accept. Mm -hmm. And it's about lowering your standards and settling in order to beat that ticking clock. Um, and so in this production, I saw, I saw Bobby as someone who was genuinely looking, but couldn't find someone compatible with her um, rather than as someone who wasn't really ready to put in the effort necessary to make a meaningful connection. And so that line where she says, I'm certainly not resisting marriage. If anything, it's resisting me. 
entirely different. I mean, same, same line, but just like hit so differently. Marry me a little, love me just enough. Cry, but not too often. Play, but not too rough. Keep a tender distance, so we'll both be free. That's the way it ought to be. I'm ready, marry me a little, do it with a will. Make a few demands I'm able to fulfill. Want me more than others, not exclusively. That's the way it ought to be. I'm ready. I'm ready now. And so I still wrestle with like what that means for being alive. Like, is it an anthem for settling? Like, is the end of the show really that dark now? Um, you know, is she swearing off dating or is it about continuing to try even though you've been disappointed? Yeah. Well, let's talk about being alive because I know, you know, we referenced it earlier as like, one of the complex emotional state moments but um but it is such an interesting moment and i you know was reading over the lyrics again uh in preparation for this and i and i kept thinking like what is what is the discovery here like what is he or she you know moving on from this too i don't know if i'm clear yeah <laughs> Yeah, and there are so many versions like yeah. of, of, you know, those. So for me, there's sort of like a triangulation between someone is waiting, marry me a little and being alive. And even marry me a little sometimes comes and goes depending on the production. And right. I feel really strongly that marry me a little needs to be there. Yeah. But it's this progression from like absolute fantasy, like I'm going to marry my friend's wives to or the, or the like invention of a fake woman, a fake ideal woman to okay, I'm ready to do this. But like, marry me a little is just, again, like, it's a fantasy. He just didn't understand that it's a fantasy. Um, and a, a willingness to kind of go halfway. Um, that's not a functional relationship. And so I think until I saw the new version, for me, being alive is, or the revelation of being alive is understanding the value of, you know, giving and taking and the compromise of relationships. And I have never felt that Bobby finishes the show saying, like, I'm going to go out and get married tomorrow. But I think he finally understands, like, what it means to form a meaningful connection with someone, what it's going to take, you know, from him. And that maybe, I think especially in the Doyle production, there's that moment where Bobby blows up the candles and he's smiling and it's such a sort of serene smile I always left feeling like, you know, it was going to happen eventually, but he was going to do it on his own terms. I'm looking at what his friends are saying and a lot of their marriage pitches are bad. Like yeah. <laughs> it's like very unconvincing to me. Yeah. That, you know, they're they're really going to that they're real they're not really selling marriage that well here. So, I'm wondering then, you know, what what he he or, you know, at least Bobby in the previous versions is is walking away from this experience of interrogation and with his friends, you know, with and yeah, and most of those marriages are 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 kind of dysfunctional. And you know, one interpretation that I've heard from someone who played Bobby is that, you know, at the end of the show, maybe he's not going to talk to those friends for a while and he's going to kind of go 
you know, do some searching on his own. And because these voices are just like, he needs a break from them. And yeah. I'd agree with that. They're, they're a little too involved. <laughs> well, there is a thing that like, if you are not married and all your friends are married, it is, yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. You, you do need some non-married friends if you're not married in a way, because, you know, it, there is a, I, I don't know, I feel, you know, in my late thirties that there is a little bit of a line between, you know, friends who are married and friends who are not, Yeah, you know, not that, that we're not friends, but there is, is, there is a little invisible line. Yeah. Yeah. I always felt like, like that Bobby, like he needed to get some other friends. Yeah. Um, and that there was nothing wrong with these friends, but maybe he just needed to kind of step away and figure out what, what made sense for him. So, yeah. but I do still think that the revelation of being alive is, is about like, okay, I maybe need to be willing to try this in order to, I mean, to, to be happy sounds sort of uh, cliche, but yeah, it, 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 I do think it opens up kind of a willingness. There's even that line that Joanne says where she says, um, you know, I've opened, I've opened up a door that's been stuck a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because I, you know, I do think that he is someone who's sort of like, I don't know. And then over time you see him kind of consider it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess in my time seeing the show, I've kind of felt he walks away from the end being like, let's try it. Yeah. Let me try it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah. But it is interesting because it, it is so not spelled out um which is good you know yeah. but it it is really left up to a interpretation in that way somebody need me too much somebody know me too well somebody pull me up short and put me through hell and give me support for being alive I do want to talk a little bit about um, going back to New York City as a as a character in the show because I like relationships. Our relationship with New York City changes. Yeah, like like our relationship with company, as we've been talking about, our relationship with New York City changes as we also go through life and the characters. It's showing their relationships change with New York City. I mean, one of my favorite, my, my favorite line in the whole show is there's a time to come to New York, time to leave, which I don't know, like sometimes I agree with it and sometimes I don't, but I just, (laughs) I just love that. Yeah, I love it too. And that, that's a hard moment for me because I, you know, when I first encountered company, like I was never leaving New York. I was really one of those people who would have to just be dragged away. It, it got me then even when I thought that I would never leave and it gets me now because yeah, sometimes I believe it and sometimes I don't, but yeah. Yeah. the experience of someone who's making that choice 
is so sad. Yeah, and it's so interesting to look at where that line is. Like that whole sequence of another hundred people just got off of the train is so fascinating in the show because well, first like they wrote this song, like they always it seemed like they always had like New York is is this is a part of the show in this way. And and then they wrote this song, you know, he wrote this song for that actor playing Marta, that character. And they were gonna, and then I was reading like they were gonna cut it, but then Sondheim was like, let me, let me like make it into this sequence of like with these three women. But it's so interesting because they all have like these different relationships to how they move through New York. Yeah, and that character is for Bobby, like Kathy is the one that got away. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's something in that, like, you know, is New York City tied to him in some way? I think in a lot of ways, yes. Yeah, and they have like the whole city of strangers, like the Mm -hmm. whole connection theme in there. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground line. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers. Some come to work, some to play. A city of strangers. Some come to stare, some to stay. And every day. And um, but yeah, and then there's so there's Kathy, and then there's April, who is in and out of New York. I mean, she's flighty. That's like the thing. But like, but like her, yeah, relationship, and nothing really interests her. And yeah, she, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but like her relationship to New York is that she's she's kind of moving in and out like all the time. And um, so like she has this different relationship to New York in that she's just like moving like coming in, coming out and it's, um, it's never permanent. And then. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that, that that's the one of the three that we see Bobby kind of cling to. And he, I, I don't think actually like wants to be with her or thinks like, or feels anything special for her, but that sort of, you can be here some of the time and not be here the rest of the time. Right. About her. At, it mirrors the way that she is about New York city. Um, and, you know, if we kind of tie New York City to Bobby, like there's a circle there of, of how these people feel about each other and how they feel right. about the thing. Yeah. Does Marta, Marta just stays in New York? Yeah. She's the one who loves riding the subway and wants yeah. to sit in the bar and drink and cry. And yeah, I feel like Marta is the old woman who like never leaves New York City. <laughs> yeah. Which is cool. Cause you have like, like, like those three women are, mm-hmm. you know, like a trio. That, but yeah, like one is one is permanent New York, one is leaving New York, one is in between. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, something that when I see company now as somebody who's left, I just feel, um, feel in a different way. And because yeah. company is, is for me, it is for me a New York City show. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, you're turning 35 tomorrow. Yeah. Or I guess when this episode airs today, <laughs> happy 35th. Thank so, you. So yeah, the timing of this conversation is is very poetic to me. <laughs> so how, I guess, how are you thinking about 
turning 35 in the context of company and then because yeah. I'm 38 so I I went through that <laughs> also yeah so um I mean as is probably expected of someone who had a very formative early experience with the show I've been thinking about my 35th birthday for a long time and so you know at 20 it seemed so far off and um I'll say I feel less intimidation about turning 35 than I did about turning 20 actually um and I've done a lot of thinking about my experience of being a millennial woman who came of age with company as just this central force in my life because I devoted so many years to studying it. Um, now about to turn 35 in a world where our next revival is going to be about a millennial woman. Um, I think more personally, I think as a young person, I wondered, you know, as a young person watching company, I wondered what my life would be like when I was on the eve of my own 35th birthday. Um, I'm happy to say that I'm not going to go get drunk by myself. Um, but you know, would I be happy? Where would I be? Would I finally like feel like a grown up? Um, would I still relate to this character? I still obviously adore Company. Uh, I still find myself connecting with it, even though I'm not single, um, because of course that's not all there is to it. Right. Um, I'm still moved by things that are in my past, and it's just a show that's meant a lot of different things to me over different points in my life. Um, and I look forward to kind of whatever other unexpected ways that relationship will continue to change over time. Um, I think it has little things that kind of sneak up on you. Um, and of course, I finally get to respond to happy birthday wishes by asking, I mean, how many times do you get to turn 35? 11. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only time I can do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's interesting because this was kind of by accident, but when I turned 35, I kind of went through like a transformation that started on my 35th birthday. And, and I, it was in my head that like, it was kind of that it was the company birthday, you know, 35. Yeah. And, but, um, I did like, a I put together a whole like cabaret show. I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, it just happened to like, it just happened to be the year and I was like, oh, I'm 35. Like, what a coincidence, you know? Um, but it was like doing something I was like really scared to, it was like, you know, when you do something you're like really scared to do and you do it. And it was like a big thing. I also made like ch big changes in like my personal life as well at kind of as a result of like the experience the experience of doing that thing I was scared of doing mm -hmm. for my 35th birthday, which was the cabaret. So it was this weird like transformational time, which was like my 35th birthday and kind of like the month after feeling like I'm, you know, in that, mo in that conceptual moment of company, like with everybody looking over my shoulder and I'm about to blow out a candle or something, but. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel like my mom is all of the people. <laughs> like but. so. <laughs> But um, yeah, or or I myself, like I felt like I also was myself, like looking at myself, being like, "What, what is your life? Like, what do you want? Like, yeah, what do you want like, to accomplish? And like, yeah. do you like what would happen if you made if you did some things you were scared of, you know, kind of thing?" And um, so yeah, it, it could also be yourself, I guess, looking over. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think that's like the most powerful voice, is not the people around you, but like what what you want. And I guess to go back to your question of what the revelation is, I think that's, that's the revelation, right? Is doing the things that scare you if, mm -hmm. if they seem worthwhile. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, I think now Bobby, whoever is playing that character in whatever production is like, well, I just spent this all this time thinking about marriage and my friends. Like, let me let me think about what that means for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what that means for me on my terms, not what it means to these people right. around me. And I think, yeah, I think that's that's a thing that I I think is on my mind a lot. Um, well, cool. Well, let's move on. Let's jump about twenty years ahead in Sondheim's uh, body of work to Assassins. Uh, which was 1991, the original production, because we're going to talk about uh, every the song Everybody's Got the Right from Assassins. And so why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? I chose this song because um, it's just been stuck in my head for the last few days. Um, earlier this week, Classic Stage Company did a virtual event bringing together the original cast, the 2004 cast, and then the cast of Classic Stage's upcoming production. Um, it was a fundraiser for CSC, and it included conversations with cast members and Sondheim and Weidman, um, and then some performances of the songs. And um, this show has just been on my mind a lot, kind of thinking about some of the things that they said, and the song is an earworm. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the CSC production was supposed to take place in spring of 2020. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it got delayed because of the pandemic. Um, and they've said that they're committed to producing it when they're able to. One of the things that came up in that conversation was that it was originally supposed to be produced in the same year as the presidential election. Um, and I had done dramaturgy for a concert staging of Assassins that took place the night before the 2012 presidential election. Um, and that was a truly bizarre experience to, to watch what people were, were thinking that night. Um, and the way that that production was staged was because it was a concert staging, we were pretty limited, but the director chose to have um, the entire cast on risers kind of mirroring the way that the theater looked and just staring at the audience the entire time. And it was, um, it was just this indictment, I think of, of American culture in a way that like, obviously the show is, but the visuals totally reflected that. Um, anyway, so the strangeness of an assassins in 2020 in an election year was something that really intrigued me. Um, and then some people were addressing, you know, the unfortunate fact of how timely Assassins is in 2021, a year that got kicked off with the storming of the United States Capitol building. And so you listen to Everybody's Got the Right Now and you feel like these are people who are on your TV in 2021. Right. Like people who, if things had gone slightly differently, might have actually killed not the president, but very high ranking government officials. You know, this obsession with winning that they were getting from their president and feeling like there's some kind of prize that you're entitled to and this like very selfish misunderstanding of freedom and rights and how that kind of applies to pandemic restrictions and like well I don't want to wear a mask because it restricts my rights um you know the sense that they were correct in doing the right thing and that it was noble I think is all over the song um and that if you want the country a certain way and it's not going your way you should just take it into your own hands and I felt like assassins has always been relevant and it's always been kind of creepy for me because it's it's like this trick you know it's got these catchy songs and you know the history but before you know it you're kind of sympathizing with these people who committed these unbelievable crimes um but now to feel like you know those people have people who think these things have always been out there and um to feel like those were the people who were just on tv was um something i didn't expect and they talked about um, 
they talked about Pacific Overtures, Assassins, and Roadshow as their trilogy about the American experience, which I found really unsettling because you have imperialism, you have guns, and you have fraud. And yeah. that's the American experience, <laughs> right? Um, but that's I a cool way to think about those shows. Right. Like this little box set of and, and of course, but also like really, really unsettling. Um well, American history is unsettling. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and this song, everybody's got the right. This is the first, this is the first song in the it's the first and the last, yeah. The first, oh, and last, yeah. Yeah. Cause this is and this is the the proprietor mm-hmm. is singing. Yes, yes. Yeah. And the proprietor is such like a is such a weird character because he basically starts by just encouraging everybody to <laughs> like here things talk yeah. yeah come get it and go. I also yeah I also think like I really love narrator characters but I think mm-hmm. that the balladeer is clearly a narrator character and so what what is the proprietor doing and right um but yeah that encouragement is so it's so sinister it's just so it, yeah but like I don't I don't like how much I love assassins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's something yeah, I think sinister is is the word for this song, I think, because the, the music is like a carnival and it's yeah. yeah. And I've seen production stage like and I I didn't see the 2004 revival, but I've seen other production stage like literally like carnivals. And yeah. it's just it's so creepy. Yeah. There I don't the music in the beginning to the beginning uh verse that it's just like it's so there's such a creepiness to it hey pal feeling blue don't know what to do hey pal i mean you yeah come here and kill the president i mean the lyrics the lyrics throughout this show are are very short and turt like very short lines like mm-hmm. you know hey come here come here like you know kind of lines and yeah there's a sneakiness to it and like that people are you know I think sometimes well I'm thinking about this song in particular like I wrote down some specific lyrics and you know mm-hmm. feel misunderstood free country and people just sort of shouting things that are little like snippets um but I do think you're right like assassins is very to the point um and so much of Sondheim's lyrics are you know you kind of have to like dig around for like all of the different angles and all of the different like meanings that it has but Assassin's gets right right to it um and this song sets that up yeah like there's a thesis this is what we're saying with the show you know right in the beginning the first verse has yeah come here come and kill a president you get to the chorus everybody's got the right to be happy that's like a big, you know, message of the show to these to these characters, and it's all here in this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like the person song. who's singing this song is encouraging the. You know, if we sort of think about like history as not linear for these purposes, and they're all kind of together in this fantasy carnival, mm-hmm. he's kind of pushing them over the edge to go do the thing, and I think that's also the function of the conversation at the end between. Um, Oswald and Booth mm-hmm. but he yeah he's saying like well here's a solution for you and yeah it, it just it creeps me out so much but I, I love it 
I don't know how much, how much it goes anywhere other than like, this is the, this is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's exposition in a lot of ways and it's yeah. kind of setting up the sort of like the quirky is not the right word, but like, that's the word I'm going to use. Um, this is a very quirky way of dealing with just this horrible trend in American history. Right. Um, and I guess it sets up the characters too. Really yeah. All the different ones that are coming in too. Yeah. And I think it offers a way of, of like getting at the mentality that causes people to do things like this, the mentality mm-hmm. that caused the people to storm the Capitol of like, this is mine. These are my rights. And in a way, I guess, because each, each sort of vignette is so different and each of their motivations were so different in the show and in real life, mm-hmm. it kind of draws a thread between some of those of like, you know, they were doing it because they were unhappy or because Zangara's stomach was on fire or whatever it was. Um, you know, everybody's got the right to be happy to do this thing that makes them happy or makes them feel powerful or understood or, you know, makes people, makes them feel like people are listening to them. I feel like, I feel like that's what it's doing is, is linking them all together Yeah, in, in ways that are not just, they committed this extreme crime. Yeah. And I think the music, I mean, we talked, I talked about the, the, the creepy opening music, but also that it goes into the, the everybody's got the right part is kind of like this bouncy, like, Mm -hmm. um, very happy. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's got the right to be happy. Say enough. It's not as tough as it seems. Don't be scared. You won't prevail. Everybody's free to fail. No one can be put in jail for their dreams. We're watching them kind of get on board. I mean, I think the show is all is also throughout like how like how much are we believing this as audience members, how like on their side are we and, and all that. But in this first moment, this first song in the show, like this watching how they're they're coming into this space and interacting with, I mean, I guess interacting with the American dream story, you know, like. And how someone gets from the American dream and how someone gets from, you know, I have the right to happiness to trying to kill or actually killing a president. This show is just always so interesting to me with just how like clear, clearly they like knew exactly what they wanted to say. Or that yeah, I think it's, it's message is out in the open in ways that, you know, like we we're saying about company, like you, yeah. can, you, you can't interpret assassins the same way as you can interpret there's not the subtext in the lyrics no that there is yeah in in company as we were talking about yeah i think it's 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 safe not to allow people to wonder what do you mean here about presidential assassination (laughs) the way that there's room to say what do you mean about this painting (laughs) right yeah and i think that's one of the things that makes it so interesting like in the sondheim canon is that it's it's so direct um well cool let's um move on to our final section which is something wonderful and uh where we just talk about uh something that we are excited about in musical theater uh that we want to give a shout out to 
so I'm really excited about the Sutton Foster Bring Me to Light concert, which was filmed at City Center and will be available to stream uh, for a few weeks later this month. It's got mm-hmm. a bunch of my favorite voices in it, and I just find her to be just like a ray of sunshine to watch. Um, I feel like that's what we need right now. Um, soon, I don't know exactly when, but there's going to be a digital production of the musical adaptation of Virginia Woolf's The Waves, mm-hmm. um, which was done at New York Stage and Film at Vassar three summers ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, again, I'm not sure when that will be available, but I'm really excited to see how it's being adapted for this environment because uh, I've heard it's going to be pretty different from what was on stage. Um, another thing is the second season of Central Park on Apple TV+, Plus, which will be out in late June. Uh, for people who don't know what that is, it's an animated TV series. It's a musical by the creators of Bob's Burgers. So it looks exactly like Bob's Burgers. Um, and it's about a family who lives inside Central Park because the father is the caretaker of Central Park. Sounds cool. uh, yeah, it's great. I recommend it. And you can watch it like in a day. Uh, and then to wrap up with a Sondheim thing, I just found out there's a new book aptly titled The Sondheim Encyclopedia. Um, out as of a few days ago, it's written by Rick Pender, who used to edit the Sondheim Review, um, a publication of which I proudly hoard old issues. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I had seen something about that. Yeah, um, I'll shout out. Um, I've recently watched the Bengsons uh, show from St. Anne's, which uh, was really cool and um i'm going to watch soon uh rona siddiqui's uh show from arena stage uh they they're doing a series of i think three shows that are uh short musicals uh online and hers is called a more perfect union which just came out i think last week so i'm excited to watch that so well great thank you so much for coming on and um yeah happy happy 35th thank you all for listening to this episode of scene to song you can write to scene to song at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at scene to song on Twitter at Scene2Song, and on Facebook at scene to song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And check back here in two weeks for our next episode. Music